We talked a little bit of last, last week about how God's original design was to be with us. And it's very interesting how um, the tabernacle was set up in the midst of the people. And, and the Bible, the way the, the Bible talks about it in Numbers chapter 1, is it talks about how the, the centerpiece was the presence of God. It was the tabernacle and, and all of the things that were part of the tabernacle. But what was really interesting was how all of the tribes of Israel were, were situated around the camp. And the idea was never that they were to protect the camp, uh, protect the presence. God was quite capable, obviously, of protecting himself. He didn't need that. But what he was after was he was after people being with him. You know, Scripture says that he wanted, his longing was to, uh, for us to be his people and for himself to be our God. And, uh, and he paints himself in the picture of Father uh, so often in Scripture that uh, it's hard to miss the, the fact that his, his idea behind it was, was a family. And so obviously that's part of what uh, church is about. But it literally started, the whole presence started from the very beginning. Um, in Genesis chapter 3, you see it, the scripture talks about how in the beginning God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. So let me just read that to you. It's Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And so that starts um, the theme, if you will, of falling away, the original fall. And then the redemption story that's progressively portrayed throughout all of Scripture. But it was interesting in this passage, there's an inference about the fact that God would come to them in the cool of the day. And the picture that the Scripture paints is that, that before sin, before something kept them from the presence of God, that His pattern, His desire, His heart, the whole reason that He created humanity in the first place was so that He could be in fellowship with them, which is just a fancy Christian word saying He wanted to be in their presence and He wanted them to be in His presence. And so often the, the word presence takes on a religious connotation, but at the, at the very core of what it means, it literally means to be right there face to face. And you see that so often in Scripture, that God's desire is to be face to face with His Son, with His daughter. Um, we always think of it as with, with his people, but it's always personal. And that's what you see in the scripture. It was personal that he would walk with Adam right next to him in the cool of the day. And that was the picture that God wanted to paint. So it's interesting that, that the Bible says when he realized he had sinned, when Adam realized he'd sinned, he went and he hid himself from God. And, and because of sin and that process, we've been doing that ever since then. It's interesting that the Bible says that, that um, Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of time. So it's not like sin surprised God, and it's helpful to understand this. But what happens is, is, is there's a progressive story of redemption, and it culminates in the cross. I'm going to get to that in just a second. But what has happened so often is that religion has gotten in the way of the presence of God. Religion has said that God is constantly angry with you. Because of your sin, there's nothing you can do about it. So the sense that we have is that God is an angry God, and He's ready to, to cast down you know, fire and brimstone, and, and hell awaits. And, and all of those pieces are true. But, but what's so amazing, so often is religion takes it out of the context. The context of hell was never designed to be that this is what God wants for people. As a matter of fact, he goes above and beyond throughout Scripture to say this has never been his plan. 
that that's not what he wants. His desire is to be with us. And we know that's true because of what Jesus did on the cross. The story of redemption is that Jesus came and he took away the thing, sin. He took away the missing of the mark, the thing that separated us from God. Jesus on the cross removed that completely, completely so that we could come in to the presence of God. And so if you understand that, then what happens is you, you find your way to Christ. Um, the Bible says you, you see this picture of Jesus when he would walk around in, in, the, in the cities around uh, Israel, that when people would come, he would make a connection with them, especially as they became disciples, and he would say to them, come and follow me. Again, the whole inference is come and walk with me in the cool of the day. Come and be with me. Be in my presence. And so you see this all the time. But what, but what happens so often is there's such a weird thing that occurs in religious circles that we are so afraid of the presence. And some of that has come, of course, because of excess. We've seen people, that, you know, certain uh, aspects of, uh, of, of religion, certain aspects of Christianity that's pushed the presence of God away in the sense that we don't want him to move. We don't want him to, to operate in the supernatural, that we, that we don't want things to happen necessarily the way he does. We don't want, we, we, we push away and we want to come to God on our own terms. And so what keeps us from God's presence? And so I thought a lot about that, both pastorally. What is, how do I teach into this? What do I, how do I draw people into God's presence? And I've thought about it in, in a personal perspective as well. Um, and it's, it's the connection between what's called orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And so those are just two fancy words that really, it's what you believe determines how you live. Orthodoxy, what you believe. Orthopraxy, how you live. And so often they're not congruent. Like we believe that God is good and we believe that he's gracious and we believe that he's kind. But then there's something so often that keeps us from wanting to come into his presence. And most of the time, it, comes, it stems from what religion has done, where there's guilt, shame, and condemnation that never seems to let us go. And we painted a picture that, as, especially as a believer, that if you sin, that God is angry with you and that he turns his back on you, that he, he removes his presence from you every single time you sin. And so think about that for a second in practical terms. If that's the case then God would be with you far, far less than he was ever. He would not be with you far, far less than he would be with you because of your sin. Because in our mindset, what we've been taught is that sin keeps God's presence away. And I know that that's not true for a very specific reason. There's, this is not what keeps us from, and I know this is going to be controversial, and that's okay. I'm happy to have coffee. Coffee houses open back up again, so we can go sit down if you'd like. But, but again, this may be controversial, but it's not our sin that keeps us from God's presence. And the reason I know that is Jesus paid for that in full. As a matter of fact, he paid above and beyond what was necessary to take our sin away. So let me just give you some scriptures. This is Ephesians 1.7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So it even tells us why and how that we have forgiveness, that our sin has been taken away. Romans 6, 23, we know this scripture. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, there's tons of these. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there's this great exchange, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Think about that for a second. That scripture is so powerful that, that it says, let me read it again, but God shows his love for us. In other words, if you're concerned about whether God's angry with you and he wants to turn away from you and, and you send your day of grace away, whatever that may look like, this is what scripture says to that scenario. It says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, in other words, while we were in the midst of our sin, continuing to sin while we were there, that is when Christ died for us. And so the picture that's painted is, he, it's not like God didn't know about sin. It's not like, like there wasn't preparation. That's why I mentioned that the lamb was slain before the foundation of time. God made provision for sin. But what we, we have talked about and what we've been taught so often in religion is that because we have sinned, God has turned himself away from us and that that scenario is a permanent scenario. And I'm going to get to this in just a second about your sin and how, and especially before you become a believer and, and how sin separates us from God. But I want to make sure that we understand this. This is 1 John 2 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the whole idea, the propitiation, he is the he's the gift, he's the, the, the transformation, he's the exchange, if you will, for our sin. So I mentioned that it's not sin that keeps you from the presence of God. Well, if that's the case, then what does keep you and keep most of us from wanting to enter into his presence, longing to be in his presence? What keeps us from doing that? And I believe it's this. I believe it's actually what we think about sin that matters the most. And so if I believe that my sin separates me from God, then what will happen is, practically speaking, I will never approach God. So there's this, there's this strategy that the enemy puts into our life that, that, that if we sin, first he tempts us, what scripture says, that he tempts us into sin. And then when we sin, he immediately condemns us for it. And so it's, it's the perfect strategy that he tempts you into sin. And then when you give in to sin and then you've sinned, then what he does is he, he condemns you. and He says, what kind of Christian are you? Why would God ever love you? Because look at what you did. And so then what happens is then he offers us guilt and shame and condemnation that Jesus took off of us when he died on the cross and we believed in what he did. But what happens is because of that strategy, we often put it back on us. And so this is, so, this is why understanding the gospel is so imperative. Again, because religion, because of religion, people think that God hates them, that he is forever angry, forever angry with them, and that's not what the scripture says. So let me just give you a few things from Scripture about our sin and what God's done with it. I mentioned before that He forgives us of our transgression. The Hebrew word forgiven literally means it's lifted off. So the image was portrayed in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read that, it's an incredible book. So Christian, who's the protagonist in the story, was weighed down by the burden of sin. And when he comes to the cross, the sin burden fell from his shoulders, rolled down a hill, and disappeared into an empty tomb. And that's the picture that he forgives our transgression. Another thing he does with our sin, he does not charge us with iniquity. So you see this in Psalms 32 and 2, Romans 4, 8, different places in Scripture. But this is what God does. He does not charge us with a sin. He no longer counts our sin against us, is what Scripture says. And charge is a bookkeeping term. The imagery is used in Romans 4, and it talks about God charges our sin to Jesus' ledger who bore our penalty, and he writes Jesus' righteousness into our ledger and credits us with his righteousness. Again, there's a great exchange. He removes our sins from us. How far? Scripture says, Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west. 
In other words, an immeasurable distance that he separates our sin far from us. East and west will never meet. And that's the picture that God paints. That he separates our sin as far as the east is from the west. Another thing he does is he washes away our guilt and he cleanses us from our sin. Sin leaves a mark or a stain. We've missed the mark. And so it leaves a stain that only God can wipe away. And scripture says, Psalm 51 talks about it, that he washes it away completely. He casts all of our sins into the depths of the sea. He hurls our sin into the sea. And the picture is that it sinks like a stone never to be seen again. And then lastly, he nailed our sin debt to the cross. And this is interesting. Not only does he erase our sin debt, but he destroys the very document on which our debt was recorded by nailing it to the cross. We are forgiven because of the cross of Jesus. The one I mentioned before, he removes our sin, is interesting. Psalm 103 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions. In John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God. Remember the passage, they would have known this. The passage, the Lamb was slain before the foundation of, of time for our sin. And John points to Jesus and he says, Look, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just covers it. And that's an interesting point because in the Old Covenant, that's what happened. Your sin was covered by the, by, by the shedding of innocent blood of animals. But those animals were never perfect. Even though they were without spot or blemish, they were still not enough. And it took the blood of God's own Son to be a permanent removal of sin's blemish from our life. So this is a big reason um, for why God calls us to repent. Matthew 4, 15 through 17 says something interesting. It says, land, this is Jesus, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. He's speaking to these people. He says, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So there's this sense of our sin has condemned us and we walk under the penalty of death and we, we sense that and we feel that if we don't know Christ. And it says, on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And it says this, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come or the, the heaven, a kingdom of heaven has come near. So from the time he said, he said they were walking in the shadow of death and then light is dawning. And he says, because of this, the, the, the light is dawning. He says, the repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so, so often we've, ta we've, we've tackled this word repent. And in our minds, it's meant that I'm really, really sorry. And so we have this picture maybe of coming to the altar and crying and feeling really, really badly for sin, remorseful. And that's part of what repent means, but it's not the biggest part of it. It appears 73 times. The word appears 73 times in the, in the New American Standard Bible. But what does it actually mean? And again, most of us think it means being sorry for our sin. And that's one way, but it's not the only way and probably not the most accurate. Repent literally means to take on a new mind, to align. Now think about this. It means to align with the mind of Christ that we've already been given as sons and daughters of the King. So the Bible says that we as believers have the mind of Christ. And so often what happens is we, we listen to lies and strategies of the enemy. And then what begins to occur is we, we lose the mind of Christ. We stop thinking with the mind of Christ and we start thinking with an old way of thinking. And what scripture talks about is to take on a new mind and to let that new mind be settled in you. Have the mind of Christ. Let it be settled. Let it be aligned. Let it be permanent. So you stop thinking the old way. 
And so being sorry can start with emotion. That's why we see this, and this is why repentance defined in only these terms is so dangerous. I'm sorry for my sin and I feel terrible. That's wonderful, but, but that's, that's part of what repentance means. But the Bible even talks about this, that there's a sorrow that leads to repentance and then there's a worldly sorrow that doesn't. Both of them, look, they look the same, but there's a different meth- mechanism in a biblical godly repentance and sorrow because that kind of sorrow actually leads to a new mind which leads to a transformed life. Have you ever tried to reason with a child or have a conversation with a child about their wrongdoing? If you, if you ever have done this, most of us have, it's not about them saying they're sorry. Oftentimes they're quick to do that. I'm sorry. And, and, and the whole idea is if I, if I feel bad about it, then the punishment or the talk to me will stop. I'll, I'll, I'll push away the, the, the condemnation or whatever, whatever it is that they're feeling. But when we're talking to a, a child about wrongdoing, our, our gain is not to make them feel bad. It's to, it's to let their sorrow, allow their sorrow to lead to change. Why is what you did not okay? You know, whatever that might have been, why does your behavior need to change? And this is, this is why it's, it's really important. Because what happens is if behavior change comes before understanding why the behavior should change, at best it's short-lived. In other words, that you, you begin to move into this cycle. If all you know of repentance is I just feel bad for sinning, but never allow your mind to be transformed, that what occurs is you, be, you continually rotate in a cycle of I sin, I don't want to, I feel terrible, I apologize. I'm remorseful. I say I'm sorry to God. I feel terrible. And then for a season, I feel better because of that. And then I sin the same kind of sin again because I've not been transformed. And the cycle repeats itself over and over and over again. And if we do that long enough, then what begins to happen is we begin to get into this place where we begin to turn our face away from God. And we're afraid or ashamed or for a hundred different reasons, we refuse to come into the presence of God. And I don't just mean in a meeting, in a service. I mean coming before the Lord and allowing Him to wash over me, coming before Him and to let Him speak truth and love and kindness to me. Because the danger is, if I come into this presence with that old way of thinking, all I'm going to hear is guilt, shame, and condemnation. And let me just tell you, that's not coming from God. Scripture is clear about that. Ultimately, we realize that we cannot transform without God anyway. And that's kind of the point. So I mentioned before, repentance is necessary for salvation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But the whole idea of being sorry for our sin presupposes that we've taken on a new mind about our sin and God. And I'm going to talk about this when I wrap this up in just a minute about the prodigal son and about how he was sorry for his sin and what that led to. But it's important to know that sin is not okay. Of course, that's the truth, but, but it's also been paid for by Christ. So think about that for a second. When I sin as a believer, not if I sin, but when I sin as a believer, if I miss the mark, I'm, I'm learning the mark, I'm progressing, I'm being transformed, I'm being changed from glory to glory is what scripture says. I'm growing from an immature son into a mature son. And as I'm on that journey, as I move forward, I miss the mark. And think about it, if if missing the mark every single time causes God to turn his face away from you, then what's the incentive of following after God? And so the picture that God paints is, I will never turn my face again from you. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, I, 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 I no longer, I'm no longer angry with you because of your sin. Now think about that for a second. So not repenting just simply means I've kept my old mind about it. 
To refuse the offer of forgiveness means you don't think you need forgiving. So you can't even get to the place of, of forgiveness and repentance, true repentance with a transformed mind without coming to the place that you see that the pattern of your life and your behavior has been off. And it's not, it, it, the pattern of your life behavior is just the outward expression of a brokenness that's on the inside. And so God comes after that. And he says, hey, you've missed the mark. And so often, and I hate this about church sometimes, but so often church has made so much about missing the mark that we don't actually talk about what the mark is. And the mark isn't you know, perfection that you never get it wrong. That, that place of never, ever getting it wrong is reserved for heaven and heaven alone because we're going to miss it sometimes. But the whole idea is this is a journey and in the missing that there is a love, a, a, a love from our Father who's longing to correct us and adjust us and challenge us, not discipline and beat us and punish us. The whole reason for putting the punishment upon Christ is so that he would not have to put it on you and I. And that's important to understand. Here's the danger of, of not understanding repentance is we keep asking for something that we've already been given and that's forgiveness. And again, that's the whole reason that grace exists. Grace exists because we're on the journey. We've not arrived yet. It's a process. It's growth. It's movement forward. Whatever you call it, it's necessary to understand that our standing with God, is, if we're ever going to draw, draw close to Him, is to understand that we have been, past tense, forgiven. So then what is repentance mean if i'm do i repent for my sin do i am i saying to the lord i'm sorry for my sin will you please forgive me for my sin and then i hear the echo of heaven saying i have already forgiven you for your sin and i know this is controversial and i know it's challenging because it's not what most people think but it's because they don't know as they ought to just to be honest. They've not read, they've not had an understanding in this, this concept of grace that captures your heart and you recognize that it's a journey because it's so easy. I, I remember having a conversation with a pastor and he says, if you keep preaching this grace message, then you know, people are gonna sin. And I just laughed and I looked at him and I said, I just think it's funny that you think your people don't sin. And so the, the heart of a pastor is, I wanna bring people out of their sin and their brokenness. So do I, but the method matters. And that's why presence, we're talking about the presence. If we're going to experience more of the presence of God, our minds have to change. We have to be transformed. So let me read this scripture and I'm gonna wrap this message up today. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. It, it belabors the point, old and new. Old is gone, new is come. It goes on, it says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself. So remember that, hold, that, that holding our sin against us, the charge, it, this is again, reconciled is, is a, a bookkeeping term that, that he's put something in the ledger. He's taken the red out of our ledger and placed it with, with, with positive, taken the negative and replaced it with the positive with what Jesus did. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. How do we minister reconciliation to other people if we have not fully understood that we have been reconciled ourselves? He finishes up with this. He says that God, this is the ministry of reconciliation that we get to, re we get to preach. This is the gospel that we get to preach, but it first has to be the gospel that we believe. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, 
not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. Now think about that. He's not counting people's sins against them. But, but does that mean that they get off scot-free? No, it doesn't. And we talked about this in salvation. There, you, you, can be, you can receive the gift of righteousness or you can try self-righteousness. The problem with self-righteousness is there's no such thing. It's not true. There's only the gift of righteousness. If you try to be righteous yourself, then you literally bring even more condemnation on your own life. And so the whole idea behind this is that God is no longer counting your sin against you. So how do we see more of God's presence? As we move forward and, and we lean into this, how do we walk in greater presence of God? Some of that is just an awareness of his presence. A big picture we'll talk about in the future is about just letting God be God. Letting God do God's thing God's way and not trying to limit him to our own silly misunderstandings and silly versions of what church ought to look like. We're so afraid of God breaking out. What if there's excess? There already is excess. So it's not like there's not going to be excess sometimes. But the goal behind that is to have fathers and mothers in the house, elders and leaders and mature uh, uh, fathers and mothers who can speak to the brokenness when people do things for wrong motives. And when there's excess, we can speak to the excess. But in the meantime, we're going to create a space and create an opportunity for God to move among us. So how do we see more of God's presence? Some people would say we need to live holier lives. And I would both agree and disagree at the same time with that statement. I agree that we should live lives devoted to God and reflective of his nature and his goodness. But I would disagree with most versions of how we get there. This is why repentance, biblical repentance, is so necessary. To take on a new mind about God's view of your sin. No sin is not okay. But what's the best way for you to walk in greater free freedom? Is it being more and more sorry this time than you were the last time? If we're not careful, my being sorry becomes a sacrifice that is not the blood of Jesus. And it's offering, it's going back under the law and offering a sacrifice saying, my sorrow is what you're after, God. And God is like, I am not after your sorrow. I'm after a godly sorrow that leads to transformation, repentance and transformation, a taking on a new mind. That's what God is after. It's to see your sin in the light of God's grace, that you are on a journey from something to something. And if we're going to get there, then there must be some incentive to, to keep going because religion says you must try harder, but then like the Pharisees, never lifts a finger to help you in the journey. But in the gospel and in grace, it's God's love for you and his promise that he will work in you through grace, that he sees who you are and he's drawing you out to who he desires you to be, that this is your true self. This is your mature self and the childish things that you're doing, you need to put away so you can walk into the fullness of his grace and walk into the fullness of his inheritance. So Jesus paid for your sin, so you are no longer separated from the very life you need to grow into the mature son that your father believes you to be. So what if, because of what Christ did, you could enter into God's presence with no sense of guilt, no sense of shame or condemnation, that what you had done had not defined who you are, that God and God alone gets to define you. This is the gospel of grace. Last scripture, this is Acts 20. 
And now I'm bound by the Spirit. This is Paul. Now I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus Christ, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. One version says to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I mentioned the prodigal son. The son came to his father broken, but here's the problem. He had repented. He was sorry for his sins, but it turned out he had not fully repented in a biblical sense. How do we know that? Because he'd not taken on a new mind. This is what Luke 15, 19 says. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So even though it sounds religious and it sounds right, what he had done is this. He had come to God on his own terms. His terms were, I feel terrible, I'm such a worm, I'm, I'm, I'm awful, and because of that, the best I can long for, the best I want even in my life, is to always feel suffering, so I'm always only going to arrive as a, suffering, as a servant, Sorry, that I'm only going to be a servant, that I'll never be able to come fully into sonship. And of course, we know the story that God would not have it. That the father said, no, that's not what this is about. That I gave you my inheritance, you wasted it. It turns out I have more inheritance for you. You've come back and what I want is for you to change your mind and stop thinking like a servant and start thinking like a son. It's time for you to come into the fullness of what it means to be a son. And that means there's, there's grace for missing it. And that what that does is when you realize that, that you can come into the presence of God even if you sinned some juicy sin. You feel terrible. That's a picture and a sign of the new nature that's inside of you, of course. But how long will you beat yourself on the back? How long will you try to come into the presence of God in your own way of thinking rather than let repentance occur, take on a new mind and realize that because of what Jesus did, he paid the price fully. And now you can come into the presence of God wholly and completely free of any hindering thing that would cause you to walk in every good thing that God has for you. And that's the longing that we have. God's grace is the only way we're ever going to experience the fullness of God's presence. So I want to pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you're trying to change our mind. God, that you're trying to take away that servant mentality. You're trying to remove that from our heads in so many ways, God, so we can come as sons. Lord, maybe we're just starting out on this journey and we, we miss it. Maybe there's a pattern of sin in our life. But Jesus, that's what grace is for, so that we can come boldly into the throne room of, of heaven for help in time of need. Lord, that our, knowing that our sin has been taken away, the punishment and the condemnation for our sin has been removed. Lord, and what you're saying is, I don't hold that against you. Now let me change you. Let me show you why you're living in the pattern of sin that you are. And that you want to challenge that and you want to remove that. And you want to grow us into full-fledged sons that have inherited every good thing from our Father. And so, Lord, remind us that your mercy and your grace is everlasting, Lord. And that you long for us to come into your presence. And in all honesty, according to Scripture, there is nothing in our way. Because of what Jesus did, we can come. And so, Lord, we do. We come and say, move among your people Lord, move by power. Lord, move in ways that maybe we haven't seen in a long time.
God, do miracles, do signs and wonders. God, bring a joy to your people that causes people to want to know this forgiveness that we have found. Lord, but most of all, we just want to walk with you in the cool of the day. We love you, Lord, and we see how much you love us. And because of that, Lord, we just want to be with you. We thank you for the ability to do that through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.